Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres. And uh, it's a great way to listen to books if you're in your car on the way to work, if you've got your headphones on, you're on the subway, if uh, you're too lazy to pick up a book and read it you know, with your eyes in the traditional manner, you can have someone read it to you. It's kind of nice. Are you an insomniac? Maybe you can listen to an audio book in the middle of the night while your partner sleeps peacefully. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash other people. Spell it out. Other and then P-E-O-P-L-E, the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audio book on the podcast. These are audio books, ladies and gentlemen. You can listen to them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is another attempt at communication. This is me making something and then sending it out into the world. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. Here in Los Angeles, it's nice to have you here. Not to actually have you here in my physical space, but to have you uh, in this uh, mental space, if you will. And uh, if I was if I was trying to be more accurate about it, I would say it's good to be with you, wherever you are, because uh, I'm there right now in your physical space, or at least my disembodied voice is now invading your physical space. My guest today is Douglas Copeland. Uh, it's great to have him here on the program. He's got a new novel out called Worst Person Ever. It's available now from Blue, uh, Blue Rider Press. And uh, I should mention, too, that Doug is scheduled to appear uh, here in Los Angeles at the Skirball Center on uh, Thursday, April 17th, 2014. So uh, later this week, if you're listening uh, on time, I think that's happening. Pretty sure that event is all locked in. Check online. It starts at 8 p.m., 2701 North uh, Sepulveda. If you're a Los Angelino or you happen to be visiting and you are so inclined. Uh, before we get to the conversation, I do have some mail that I thought I would share with you. A listener named Jen sent me a letter 
And uh, it reads as follows. Dear Brad, I hope you're well. I'm a recent fan of your show. And then parenthetically she says, Thank you, Insomnia. And then she continues, And I have recently subscribed to the TNB Book Club. Uh, to which I have to interrupt and say, Thank you, Jen. I love you. And if anyone else wants to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown uh, Book Club, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and sign up. How do you like that for a plug? So Jen's letter continued, uh, or continues. I don't ever write to radio shows or magazines or any other media outlets. This will actually be my very first email correspondence to a media host, as I am usually too lazy and self-conscious to communicate my neurotic thoughts to the unfamiliar public. But as a Los Angeles native and a fellow uh, Trojan alumni, I went to USC for my bachelor's degrees I just want to let you know how much I appreciate your show. I'm not in the literary field at all. I'm actually in the child psychology field. But I find your program to be very intriguing. As a graduate student who is currently going through the final stage of her doctoral training, your show has been a great companion to me. It has helped keep me sane and has made me feel less alone in my own neuroticism. Uh, I particularly appreciate the authenticity and, quote, rawness of other people, both the podcast and now the essays online. I find it refreshing to see people like Mira Gonzalez and Spencer Madsen uh, be unafraid enough or to be unafraid to be candid about their experiences. And then parenthetically, she says, I have Mira's book. I will never be beautiful enough to make us beautiful together. And I have pre-ordered Spencer's book. You can make anything sad. And then she continues, uh, if you don't mind and you have some time, I do have some questions that I'd love for you to answer. Number one, what prompted you to revamp the Other People podcast to its current format with Mira and Spencer as co-contributors? So I'll interrupt here, and I'm just going to answer these questions one at a time. Seems like that's the way to go. Uh, first off, just to clarify, and I don't mean to nitpick, but the other people podcast has not really, you know, been revamped. It did get a new logo and I did change the branding, which, you know, everybody should hopefully know about by now. The show's name is now uh, other PPL instead of the uh, old traditional spelling. It's now other PPL, uh, dot com and you know, the other people podcast, but it's, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, but otherwise, <clears throat> you know, format-wise, the podcast is the same as it ever was, which should be, you know, self-evident to anyone who listens with uh, any degree of regularity. But, of course, the website did get revamped. And it is now featuring weekly written content by uh, Mira Gonzalez, Spencer Madsen, and myself. We put new stuff up every Wednesday, just one day a week. And, uh, you know, going forward, we're going to be... Uh, featuring some some posts by uh, guest writers whom we will select which is another way of saying we're not going to be accepting submissions because none of us have time for that so you know like what prompted the redesign and the decision to include writing on the site uh well for one thing you know the website needed revamping because the first iteration uh was really rudimentary and old school it was just a standard wordpress template that I, I wasn't in love with. It looks sort of hacky. And, I, you know, uh, when the podcast launched, I didn't put a bunch of time and resources into the uh, design. 
because uh, I was lazy and uh, it was for a podcast. And I, I just figured, uh, let's just get this thing started and I'll fix the website later. And I, I you know, I also know uh, from being a podcast fan myself that most people listen via iTunes uh, or else they're using the uh, Other People app, the free Other People app, which everyone out there should get. So, you know, uh, that said, it has been on my mind to fix the website and to make it more uh, professional looking and to make the design uh, just look nicer. And I, I feel like we've done that. It's very simple, but, you know, we you know, we wanted it to be simple. And I think it's an improvement. And then, you know, as far as adding uh, writing to the site and having Mira and Spencer come on as regular contributors, you know, it's like everything else that I've done online or pretty much everything in my literary existence. It's just an experiment. I'm just making it up as I go. And uh, the way that it went down, basically, was that Mira and Spencer and I, uh, we were hanging out here in L.A. We started talking. The idea came up. Things sort of snowballed, and it seemed interesting. I mean, why not, right? Why not give it a shot? And, you know, I feel like the generational gap uh, between us is compelling, to me anyway. Because, you know, Mira and Spencer, they're in their, uh, they're in their early 20s. I'm almost 40. <laughs> How many online magazines feature one middle-aged contributor and then two contributors in their early 20s? I don't know of any. Personally. So that seemed odd to me. And I think we all sort of uh, feel good about that. We feel like it could yield an interesting dynamic, possibly. And then secondly... And uh, probably more importantly to me was that I just wanted to start writing stuff and putting it up online. I need to do that. I mean, my show is is about uh, the narrative arts. I do all this talking about writing. I'm constantly talking to writers. And I'm a writer myself, but I'm uh, not getting enough done because I'm too busy doing this other stuff. So this sort of hopefully will force my hand. I'll get some words down. I'll put them out there, share them with people. Yeah, you know, as long as I feel like the the work that I'm sharing is of a certain quality, because I do want it to be good. And I talked about this in the last episode. Uh, if I find that I'm stretched too thin and I'm not able to to write stuff that I feel is worth people's time, then I won't do it. I will be holding myself to a certain standard. There's no point in just like sh- you know shoveling mediocre writing up onto the internet. You got to give your best effort. So, you know, so far it's worked out, I think. It's been fun for me. And the response to the writing on the site has been positive across the board. Which has been gratifying. So, uh, on with uh, Jen's next question. She writes, Do you ever find it difficult to, quote, connect with Mira and Spencer given the age discrepancy? I hope that's not too offensive. Do Mira and Spencer ever find you awkward? Uh, okay. So to answer your first question, do I ever find it difficult to connect with Mira and Spencer? I think maybe with Spencer a little bit more than Mira because, you know, I connect with Mira well, and I know her better. We've known each other for a longer period of time. She lives here in town and we go back a little ways. And, uh, 
I feel like we, I just feel like we're on the same wave uh, on the same wavelength. It's an easy friendship. Spencer, uh, it's not like there's a problem. It's just that I'm I'm just getting to know him as we go, and he lives in New York. And you know he's a, he's a smart guy, and he's got this funny edge to him, which uh, I don't think like you know for, from the outside looking in, I don't know if I necessarily expected that because he's kind of this sweet faced guy, but he's got sort of an edge, and uh, you know, he's from the Bronx, and I feel like that sometimes comes out in his work and you uh, know in, uh, in our communications in ways that uh, feel a little un- uh, unexpected uh, to me anyway, but. You know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't be doing this project with Mira and Spencer if I didn't hold them both in high regard. And, you know, they both make me laugh. We have a similar uh, dark sense of humor. We have an easy shorthand. I, I think they're both very bright. And, uh, you know, I don't really give a shit about the age difference, to be honest with you. It doesn't factor in. I mean, for one thing... You know, I'm not hung up on my age. It doesn't bother me. I'm 38. I don't care. Like, what am I going to do? And they're in their early 20s. Good for them. But, uh, you know, that's no picnic either. <laughs> but, you know, that said, I have pondered it. And uh, I think, you know, I think I'm always going to have, in, throughout my life, I hope that I always have healthy respect for people who are younger than I am. And particularly for people... Um, who are chronologically young, meaning, you know, young adults, teenagers, kids, whatever. And I think that this stems from a feeling that I remember having uh, in my own childhood and uh, when I was a young adult, where I felt maybe, you know, condescended to, uh, you know, by people, older people in my orbit, unlistened to, discriminated against because of my age and uh, inexperience or what have you. I always bristled at that when I was younger, you know, like not that I was some kind of know-it-all, but just, yeah, I didn't feel like my, uh, thinking or what I had to say, uh, particularly if it worked against the ideas of those who were older than I was, uh, you know, I didn't feel like uh, my, my thinking was always respected. And so, uh, you know, I, I've sort of made a vow to myself to never treat people like that just because they happen to be younger than I am. And uh, then the other part of it, I think, has to do with uh, being a dad. This might be a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more surprising of an angle, but, you know, I'm a father. And I think that uh, my friendships with Mira and Spencer, uh, I think I find them interesting in part because I have a young daughter. She's going to grow up. She's going to become a person in this world. And, uh, you know, obviously her generation and her set of experiences on this planet uh, they're going to be vastly different than mine in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I just don't want to be out of touch with what people younger than I am are going through and with how they, you know, with how they see the world. Like there's this, uh, there's this quote and I'm paraphrasing from Kurt Vonnegut and I, I got it. Now I, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I even bring this up in conversation, uh, with Doug Copeland, but, uh, I'm not sure. But anyway, Vonnegut was asked about his work one time when he was being interviewed. And uh, specifically, he was asked about its appeal to young people who make up so much of his readership. You know, because people tend to read Vonnegut when they're young, when they're teenagers uh, in the freshman dorm at college or whatever. And uh, Vonnegut was asked about this, and he said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I like to reach people before they become 
uh, like middle managers and CEOs and four-star generals and so on and so forth. He liked that. He liked that his readers were young, or at least he had learned to like it. And I think that makes some sense. I think there's some wisdom in that. And there's, I think there's something really wonderful and uh, valuable about the time in life when you're an adult, uh, but you haven't gotten too swept up into the world of adults. Which, like, let's face it, it has some problems. <laughs> There's some dysfunction there. It can be a toxic and disillusioning place. So, you know, I hope that explains it. I think that's the gist. I like Mira. I like Spencer. Uh, together we are conducting an experiment. And I have no idea what's going to come of it uh, or, how, you know, how long it will go for. But so far, so good. So uh, Jen continues her letter by saying, as someone who has been there and who has survived early adulthood, the 20-something years, do you ever feel the impulse to give Mira and Spencer advice? And uh, to that, I would say sometimes. But for the most part, I resist it. I don't think I've given Spencer very much advice. But Mira, uh, especially last year when she was living in New York and she wasn't taking that great a care of herself... And she was in this bad relationship, <laughs> the guy who wasn't treating her well at all. You know, I was privy to this because we were, uh, you know, we had an epistolary relationship. We were texting. She was telling me what was going on. And I think in some instances I did give her advice. And, and you know, some of this advice was solicited. She was asking me for my opinion. Some of it, uh, I think, uh, was not solicited. And I just gave it. <laughs> which I hope she doesn't uh, resent me for. I don't think she does, you know, because I, I, I don't put much stock in advice giving. I feel weird about it. Telling people how to live as if I have it all figured out. But, you know, it's human. It's tempting to want to give people advice. We can always see other people's uh, stuff better than we can see our own. So I, I think that actually answers Jen's next question. Do I ever worry about Mira and Spencer? Yes, of course. Uh, they're friends of mine. Uh, I worry about Mira's uh, depression, her food issues, uh, her drug and alcohol intake. I worry about uh, Spencer's relationship problems. <laughs> I think he has some anger, some male anger that sometimes comes out. And you know what? I have that too. I mean, shit, uh, we're people, we're human. I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you uh, the truth. Plus, uh, you know, they both dropped out of college and, and they have no plans to go back at present, uh, which uh, I suppose is a little risky. But uh, I'm also seeing that through the lens of my own experience. And I think that Mira and Spencer are in a different situation. They're in a different generation. They have different information. <laughs> And, you know, these are, uh, these are both very bright, funny, talented people who have good natural instincts and uh, have gotten a good education, either through the high schools that they attended or whatever, or just by their own hand, or the people who, you know, they have chosen to surround themselves with, or their parents or whatever. They're bright. And uh, they don't want the student loan debt that comes with college. They'd rather be debt-free or, you know, mostly debt-free and uh, without a bachelor's degree in uh, English. I think there's some logic in that. But I do worry, well, you know, like what happens 
when they're 30 years old if they don't get some good breaks in publishing. And I mean some, like, really good breaks. <laughs> you know, I, who knows? Uh, and you know what? Maybe Mira marries a, a millionaire. Maybe Spencer marries a millionaire. Maybe uh, other PPL.com uh, becomes uh, an internet sensation and we all cash in. I have no idea. But, you know, I worry about it. And uh, I'm sure they worry about me too. In a variety of ways. Or maybe not. <laughs> maybe they don't even think about me. I have no idea. But, I, you know, I think sometimes they may worry that I'm out of touch. That I don't know a lot about what's going on. Uh, in the culture, especially. And I, you know, I don't know if that's... A, is, that, is that surprising to hear? I think I mentioned this before. I mean, I, I think I have a general sense of what's going on in publishing. But uh, I don't know everything. Uh, far from it. There, there's a lot to keep up with. And I'm just not that voracious of a cultural consumer in the way that so many people seem to be. I've said this before. Uh, and then, of course, there's the generation gap. And, you know, sometimes my lack of knowledge, uh, I think, can concern Mira and Spencer. Like, for example, they had to explain uh, the other day uh, who Tavi Gevinson was. And when I, I mean, I sort of knew, but when I asked for clarification, uh, they were pretty flabbergasted. <laughs> they were troubled by that. So it's that sort of thing. Uh, so finally, from Jen in her uh, letter, uh, she writes, I hope these questions aren't too creepy or personal or condescending. I'm not trying to imply anything at all. I'm simply interested in hearing people's thoughts in regards to their interactions with us millennials, especially since we often get such a bad rap. Thanks for considering my email. Keep up the great work and best of luck to you and your family. Jen. So thanks for the, the letter, Jen. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, when it comes to these generational distinctions, these names that we give uh, generations, I, I'm not really sure if it's entirely helpful. Like as if you're on a team or something. It's like you've been branded. And, you know, I know that they do serve some useful purpose. They're used as like time markers or what have you. But, you know, ultimately we're all people. We're all in the same uh, boat. And uh, I think that older generations need to be appreciated for their wisdom, uh, assuming that they've found some. <laughs> uh, one hopes that that has happened. And uh, I think that in our culture, we don't appreciate uh, older people nearly enough. It's a bad thing. We fetishize youth and youth culture. Uh, there's all this Botoxing and whatnot. There's all this hiding of death and, you know, like running away from uh, the realities of old age. I don't, I don't think that's good. I wish it were different. It's not healthy. Just accept it. It doesn't mean, you know, you can fight against it, but do it naturally. Take good care of yourself. Exercise. Eat well. Stay vital, but don't, uh, you know what I'm saying. And, you know, at the same time, in, in the same breath, I think that younger generations deserve to be heard and treated with equal respect. Because, you know, we're all people. And while the younger generations might not have the experience of their elders, uh, they do have a lot to say about the way the world is now and a lot to say about the way the world is going to be in the future. Plus, they have the energy of youth. And their minds, uh, for the most part anyway, are unclouded by so much of the toxic buildup that accumulates in the adult mind. 
And that's a valuable thing. So that's my feeling on it. I have no problem with millennials. I have no problem with any generation, except for, uh, except for maybe the baby boomers who have uh, you know, vacuumed up so much. They've had it all. Sex before AIDS. A steadily rising economy. You know what I'm saying. George Carlin does a good bit on the baby boomers. And uh, he says it way better than I ever could. So go uh, watch George Carlin talk about baby boomers on YouTube. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Douglas Copeland. He's the author of several books, including the 1991 bestseller entitled Generation X. Speaking of generations and generational uh, nomenclature. So Doug's new novel is called Worst Person Ever. It's out there now from Blue Rider Press. I'm very pleased to have him here on this program. And uh, let's get to it. Here he is. This is Douglas Copeland. And his new novel, once again, is called Worst Person Ever. Right now, I am in my bedroom at home in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I'm in bed because last night I had incredible insomnia and I couldn't sleep until around 5, 5.30. So I took a sleeping pill, which I used very, very judiciously. And it was a really hard wake up. So I'm, I'm awake now, but like, I feel lost in time and space sort of. Yeah, I, was, uh, I have uh, insomnia problems sometimes. I couldn't sleep very well last night either. And I'm curious, like, what was it that was keeping you up? Was it something specific or was it just general malaise or? No, <laughs> uh, there's just too much going on in my head right now. Uh, I sort of, I call it planning head where, you know, I, I've got staff I have to work with. I've got two trips I have to make, things I forgot to do. And, oh, 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 and just, oh, that. And before you know it, you're not, you're not sleeping. But you, and you're, but you're a very busy uh person i've like i've been reading about your like work ethic and all the different things that you do creatively like you're not somebody who really stops you're, you're not prone to taking vacations or to giving yourself days off like do you think that's part of it i don't know i i, I think my my issue with vacations is that it implies that <clears throat> your your real life is something that needs taking a vacation from and so i mean i i, I build my days so that every day is a thursday that's the best day of the week and, um, and on like the worst time of the year is Christmas over the last week of the year when it's very, very hard to pretend, pretend that everything is a Thursday in the middle of a regular working week. Why do you think Thursday is the best day of the week? 
well, okay, well, Monday just blows. Two is like, still the rest of the week to go. <laughs> Wednesday is like, oh, halfway. But Thursday, <clears throat> everyone's, okay, everyone knows that they could well be bailing on Friday. And, uh, and uh, but it's not quite, you're not desperate for the weekend. Uh, I get the most emails on Thursday afternoon uh, for some reason. And uh, it's just a very, very productive time. I like that. And the lowest email volume of the week is Saturday mornings, Saturday early afternoon. My, what's your busiest email uh, day of the week? You know, I don't. I, I guess it would probably be sometime in the middle of the week. And I, I was thinking about what you were saying about Thursday, and it's like uh, I feel like I feel like I sort of understand that from the from the perspective of anticipation. Like I've always been a person who likes Christmas Eve better than Christmas Day or New Year's Eve better than New Year's Day. Oh. <laughs> Thursday seems to hold some sort of promise to it. You know, it's like you're you're still in it. So you're still being productive and getting things done, but there is some sort of promise of like the end of the grind or, you know, the, the promise of the weekend or whatever. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, someone was, we were talking about this. Why are there seven days of the week? At one point, the Americans were going to go metric and they actually toyed with the idea of a 10 day week. And it was just like blown to bits by every single person. Um, and how did we end up at seven days a week? Shouldn't it be like eight? I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of an arbitrary. I mean, is it an arbitrary decision? I feel like you would know more about these kinds of things than I would. I've never thought about it that deeply. But why do we have a seven-day week? It's probably the optimum number for capitalism. Yeah, just like having the – well, I mean, the, but the, did we always have – I don't even know if we always had the weekend. It was like we had Sunday off because of some sort of biblical concern, but then – Everybody works six, and then eventually, like workers' rights, uh, you know, they fought for those and got the extra day. Is that how it worked? Well, I, I think in years ago, there must have been sort of a Mr. Burns from The Simpsons like person who experimented on living human beings on how many days of the week were needed. And he's like, hmm, excellent. <laughs> how many can they take, you know, before they completely crumble? Before they implode. <laughs> so, uh, like, how do you work? You know, you're, you're living up in Canada. Uh, outside of Vancouver, so you're in I, in like a. Well, it's 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 it, it kind of maps onto the Bay Area. If if you think of Vancouver as San Francisco, I'd be over in the Berkeley area across the bridge on the map. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, like, what's your ritual? Uh, like like last night's bout with insomnia notwithstanding, are you a morning rider or? Oh, uh, I'm 52. Until about 42, I was uh, a late night rider, and I loved it. And every writer older than myself said, like, oh, don't worry, you'll become a morning writer. And I said, oh, like hell I will. And and then one day it happened. Uh, I find that wake up, bit of news, yogurt, and you've got maybe 90, 120 minutes where your brain is fresh. We're actually going to be creative or create something. And then that ends and... Well, there's the rest of the day, so you've got to do something else. So you go do something else. But your brain, of course, is churning away on what you did in the morning. And then late in the afternoon, you can go ahead and edit what you did. And then before bed, you do one final to clean up and edit. But but anything creative has to take place in the morning. Okay, so you mentioned – and I think like there's a – you know, I've talked about this with writers on this show before. There's a similarity between late at night and early in the morning, namely that there's not a lot of distraction. It's quieter. You know, the brain finds a way to quiet down either by – virtue of sleep or by virtue of um, just uh, the stillness of late night. But when you say a bit of news, because this is a problem for me, 
uh, is that it's hard for me to kind of temper that and keep some sort of constraint on how much news I ingest. Like, do you read the paper in the morning? Do you just like sweep through a couple of websites just to get your... Oh, oh Brad. I mean, a week ago, I just shipped up something to someone. Do we have any newspaper? And I realized that we haven't had a newspaper here in about two and a half years. And so I had to go up to the studio and find some old crumpled up newspaper that came in an, e- in an eBay purchase and use that to pack it. So I don't read newspaper paper. Um, I read, it's kind of horrifying. Um, I, I start with the, the Daily Mail out of England. And because it's just like a, a big, noisy, sensationalist paper. And then I go to the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national paper, and then to New York, the New York Times. And I have this theory that if you read those three papers and the headlines are different in all three papers, then everything's all right with the world. And the, the days you want to watch out for are the ones when all those three papers have the exact same headline. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, I've heard, I've read you, uh, in interviews before talking about a shift that you made at the age of 40, yeah. uh, you know, where you felt like there, you know, you were not using your brain, um, uh, in the way that you wished you were, or like you made some sort of pivotal shift. Like, can you talk about that period in your life? Mm-hmm. And I'll confess to having a certain interest in this because I'm 38. So okay. I'm, I'm coming up on it. What, what? What should, I oh, be on, what, should, you know, what should I be looking out for? Well, at 40, I have this theory that men and women, doesn't matter who you are, where you are, at 40, you're going to make two and a half really stupid decisions. Awesome. I don't know what they're going to be, but they will happen. So watch out. Uh, what happened at 40 was, oh, boy. Uh, since I began working with long-form fiction, uh, I've always been doing interviews where the interviewer says to me, you know, Doug, your, your writing is really visual. And I was never sure if that was a put down or a put up. And then I began to read about brains and how we're built. And I realized what those people were really saying is, really saying is Doug, I'm not a visual thinker. And you are. And you write like a visual thinker. So when I read it, I don't have the necessary cues that I need to go through a book. And when I say visual thinker, like I can say to you, okay, Brad, pretend Hitler is sitting across from you and he's eating spaghetti. And you can probably see him in your head uh, because you're a visual thinker. But I'd say like half, half of humanity, I think it's biologically distributed randomly, can look at an empty chair and they'll never be able to visualize Hitler eating spaghetti or, you know, an ostrich wearing a tutu. Uh, They need to be told what they're seeing, and then they need to be told how they feel about what they see, which is sort of, it goes against the thing you're taught in school, like, you know, show, don't tell. I think you actually have to show and tell. Um, You know, Brad saw Hitler eating spaghetti across the table, and he was very afraid. Uh, And that actually, if you look at the literary world, it's, especially in academia, it's loaded with non-visual thinkers who went there precisely because they don't have to deal, want to have to deal with visual thinking. And, and I realized, you know, partially, you know, you're, you're not going to change your brain. They can't change their brains. And I looked at all the people who I get along with, and they're all usually painters or people in the visual world. And that, so I decided, you know, that's a very good reason, you know, to change realms and go work in another realm. Uh, 
so that was back around 2000. So I began, I went to art school to begin with. So a decade late, I started doing a visual career and, uh, uh, I mean, the other thing too is writing takes place in time and, and visual art takes place in space. You know, there are exceptions or hybrid forms like film, but that's the way the nature of the brain. And so when I was writing, I'm always, you know, thinking about time and sequencing. But when I make something physical, it's all about that thing that's there in front of you, which is, I'm, you know, they, they're probably as far away, the, those two cortices are as far away in your head as it's possible to be. And uh, I found that unless I wasn't truly happy until I started using both an equal amount of time. I think that was the ultimate reason. Okay. So, but, okay. So you, you, and you mentioned this, but you were educated as a visual, as a visual artist. Yeah. And I went to art school for 80 to 84. Okay. So, and as a sculptor. Yeah. Okay. And then started publishing in the early nineties. Uh, Generation X came out in March, 19, 91. Okay. So what, what prompted the shift for you? Like you go to art school, you're working as a visual artist. You were presumably doing some of that after graduation or at least making some sort of pursuit of that and then decided that you wanted to work both sides of your brain. You know, like what, uh, what prompted the beginning of Generation X? It's sort of one of those Lana Turner wearing a sweater, a sweater at Schwab's kind of story. Um, I was living in Tokyo and I was working as a designer uh, at, so I guess the equivalent of Condé Nast in magazine house in Tokyo. And uh, I sent the wife of a friend a postcard uh, and I forgot about the postcard. And then uh, the summer came and I had this really, really bad dermatological reaction to the, the sort of very sweaty, uh, the climate there. And I had to come back to Vancouver which is a terrific come down after the excitement of what I'd been doing. And, but because uh, I was in my twenties, I had this thing called a protective clueless coating. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'm horrified with hindsight and the phone rang. And what happened was a magazine editor was at my friend's uh, place read my postcard on the fridge and said, oh, this guy should write for us. And Doug, well, he doesn't write. Sure he does. This is a great postcard. And so ring, ring, hello. Uh, we'd like you to write for us. And I said, I think you got a wrong number. I don't write. No, sure you do. It's a great postcard. Well, it's your money. What magazine, so the, what magazine was this? It was like Vancouver. It's like a city magazine for Vancouver. Okay. At, at Zenith in terms of page count and ads and everything. And so two days later, I was down in Los Angeles, and I was writing this article about this, you know, this art crook uh, who originally comes from Vancouver and had a glamorous two days there, wrote it in three days, and got this check for $3,500, which was, holy moly, how, wow. Yeah. I, and that, and was, I, that would be great today. <laughs> I had fun, and it was easy, like, Okay, so I, mean, I had a studio then, and studio bills are expensive because uh, when you make something 3D, like it's a, you multiply what it costs to make a painting, you know, square it, 
And it, it, so I was there able very quickly to pay all my studio bills and get proper materials. And it was a nice relationship. But then after a year, I was like, well, if I'm going to write, I should probably be writing fiction because it seems like the most pure form of writing. And, and then I wrote X and, you know, and that struck a chord. And so I spent 10 years really developing writing the way I do. And then I just hit the wall. Like I've got, if I don't do visual, I'm going to freak out. So I stopped. Okay. So, so but like when you say you wrote X, I mean, you didn't, I mean, you apprenticed a little bit, I guess, as the, doing this magazine work, but had you made attempts at fiction before you sat down to write Generation X or was that kind of just your, your first go at it? Um, I had done two pieces, which were sort of semi-fictionalizations of a real, uh, of real life, but no, but yeah, that was pretty much it. It was right out of the gate. It's like, boom, that, that's what it wants to be. And that's what it is. Do you think that you have a, a really strong innate talent for fiction writing? I have a talent for writing the way I write. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, hmm. I, 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 I only ask that because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of writers, it's like such a struggle to learn how to get to that point, but you seem to have found it early. Like, do you think that maybe that was uh, because you had already studied and worked as an artist, even if it was in a different medium, you think that that education and the work that you had done in design had prepared you to write fiction uh, in a way that maybe like a more traditional apprenticeship might prepare a writer? Oh, I, know, I know that most of the writers I've ever met who write for a living usually we're doing something else up until the age of 30. Uh, and then they sort of fell into writing quite naturally. Um, did my art training help me? Nah. Um, I think you go to art school to learn your sense of style or to learn who you are and to learn how to be more honest to yourself and your perceptions. I think that was very, very helpful. Um, I, 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 the people who come out of literary programs, um, they harbor not misconceptions, but uh, like, are you published yet? Right. Did you get published? Oh my God, it's published. And like, oh my God, like so-and-so got published. I'm so jealous and da 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 when in fact, I've always come to the gate knowing that willing to write and people are just going to read it. I assume that. So uh, you might as well just get to the point. Well, and you don't, and you don't I mean working the way that you do with the discipline that you do, uh, you know, being a, a seven day a week worker, like you don't have any of the, or I'm, I'm assuming you don't have any of the neuroses that can fell other writers, you know, where they have trouble getting to the keyboard or to the, to the blank page or whatever. Like you just sit down and do it. Well, I mean, there's no way to do a, a, a book or long-form fiction unless you have discipline and you put yourself in a certain place every day to write. And some days it's not going to happen, and some days it's great. But you have to be absolutely uh, meticulous in keeping that schedule going. You know, and, and it would, if I meet someone like when they're a writer, oh, when do you write? And say, oh, when the spirit moves me. I, you know, in my head, I'm like, hack. Because <laughs> uh, you just, it's discipline. I mean, I'm not patient, but I am disciplined. So what what does your writing space look like? I mean, you're in your room right now. Is that where you work or do you have like a study or something? 
Oh, it, it's funny. If you in T Magazine, the New York Times took a picture of it for a series they did on writers' writing rooms, and they showed me these past uh, photo series had done of writers' rooms, and there are all these big, white, empty rooms with nothing in them except a desk and maybe a, a thinnest of thin sheer blowing in the breeze. And now look at them. It's just horrifying. I get agoraphobia. I mean, I work in a small black room with the walls completely covered in stuff. And A black room? A black room. It sounds really grim, but it's not. If you paint a room black, Whatever you put in the walls just pops, and it really makes your brain feel good. And my thinking is that, okay, I write for a while, okay, I'm doing time, and then you pull your head away, and I look around the room, and there's all this space. And so my brain gets this wonderful sort of calisthenic effect moving between time and space. See, that's the kind of thing that a vi- only a writer who has a visual arts background would even think of, I think. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, I remember, you know, every every so often you'll read something, whether it's online or in print, about writers in their workspaces. And I, I seem to remember reading about Bretty Sinalis back in his New York days working in a blank white room, you know, like that I think was like a uh, a simulation of the blank page or whatever, you know, needing to kind of have that completely like uh, antiseptic clean space, but you're, you're doing the opposite. Yeah. And it's funny. Um, uh, whoever wrote the captions on that story, they kind of phoned it in and, um, you know, uh, there's all these, these paintings on the wall, paintings leaning against the wall. You know, I gave them the n- name of the painting, the painter who did it the year, and one of them's round and, and like Copeland works in an office with a porthole shaped painting. And where the hell did that come from? <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's, there's always, there's always one weak, weak link in the chain of any process. The right. caption editor was it. Right. Right. So, uh, when you talk about having like, you know, the, the understanding that some days it's not going to happen and anybody who's tried to write anything long form will eventually come to this realization. Uh, how do you work through that? Like, do you, you, you said you're, pa- you're patient or you're not patient. You're, you're disciplined, but you're not patient. Like, do you ever get fed up with a project and just junk it? Like, how do you soldier on? I've never junked a project. Um, you have to remember also that on the best writing day of your life, it's probably only going to be about 2,200 words. Um, that's the other side of the spectrum. It all kind of, it averages out to about, 450 words a day. Uh, and that's been a constant for about, I'd say, 12 or 15 years now. Um, that's like a page and a half, right? Something like that. I don't get page, like, uh, right? How, how, how far along are you? I'm 111 pages in. I mean, what's a page? What matters is word counts. And I mean, 75,000 is, is a book. So if you're a 50,000, then you're two thirds of the way through the book. It's just sort of much simpler math and it makes sense. So do you work on like on a daily basis? Are you counting your words? Like do you keep a log and say, I got my 450 today or is it more of just intuitive? You know, no, at this point I can just, I know instantly when you got it. Yeah. It's, um, I, I used to be such a note taker. I, I had these little notepads in my pocket and a pen and, I'd hear a word or a phrase that had resonance or had an idea and I'd put it in this book. And, and then after about 10 years, I, I slowed down and I stopped doing it. I thought, oh, no, like I'm, I'm becoming, uh, this is how it starts. And I'm losing my 
them. And what I realized is, I guess it's that 10,000 hour rule. It's just like after having taken notes for 10,000 hours, like I learned how to make a good note on my own and I didn't need reality to really inform it. Yeah. I'm sort of, I'm kind of of two minds on that because I'll, I'll talk to writers who do that with discipline. Like they've never, they're never without their ink pen in their notebook in their pocket and they're constantly grabbing um, like overheard conversations and, you know, language off of billboards or whatever it is that's in their environment that might serve as inspiration. And I can think to myself like, oh God, I need to do that. I'm missing stuff that would otherwise be good fodder. And then uh, I also hear, I've also heard somebody say, you know, I don't keep a diary because the good stuff sticks. And <laughs> I, I think there's some truth to that too, you know? Well, I know. I mean, basically, I make shit up for a living. So I just, I've gotten better at bullshitting, I suppose, is, is the answer. Right. Well, one would hope, you know, if you do it uh, over time. Uh, I had this weird thing happen starting about four years ago, and maybe it happened to you or other listeners. Um, I mean, I'm not a good typer. I, I, uh, I'm a, like a three and a half finger typer. And every fourth word, I have to look down at the keyboard. Because so I taught myself, which is a bad decision, but I, nonetheless, um, about four years ago, I realized I was making all these weird new mistakes, like uh, intercapping, forgetting letters, putting the wrong word here or there. And, and I thought, oh dear, this is what it's. This is what it's like having a stroke. It's like it's in slow motion, and 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 it just kept on getting worse and worse. And I was really panicked, but I didn't want to talk to anyone about it because I didn't know how to deal with it. And then I looked back and I realized, okay, you know, typing—at least the way that you type—is like this little cluster of neurons or whatever, you know, back in the rear right part of your brain, and. For 20 years, you've been doing typing a certain way, and then you went out and bought an iPhone, with which you're also a three-and-a-half-fingered typer, except on an iPhone, your thumbs are doing what your fingers do, and your fingers are doing what your thumbs do, and it has autocorrect on top of everything. And so that poor little cluster of neurons in your brain that does typing, suddenly you're giving it the opposite rules, and and it's freaking out, and... And then, well, at least I know why it's happening. And then I read this thing that everyone on Earth, regardless of age, gets 10,000 new brain cells a day. But if you don't use them, they dissolve back into the body, which is kind of creepy. And uh, so I think it took four years plus a lot of attempts to get fresh brain cells for me to finally be able to type the way I type before an iPhone. You know, that, that seems like a very Douglas Copeland thought thought train right there like i never had thought about that but you really do it, it flips the hand like the the whole iphone typing process is an exact inversion of yeah and your, your brain's like what the hell yeah i still can't type on an iphone and i've i've had one for the last you know what two three years and i've typed it however many messages on it but i find it i find it frustrating to this day i agree so uh, i want to ask you about your approach to your fiction work because uh, you remind me of uh, writers like Vonnegut in the sense that you seem to work from big ideas uh, principally. Like that seems to be the foundation of your work. Uh, not that there aren't uh, obviously the, you know, other elements that, that factor in, but you seem to be a writer uh, whose novels are, serve as vehicles for big ideas. Like, do you agree with that assessment? Um, 
Sure, why not? Um, I think each book, and this might be the, the uh, my inner art student, uh, each book is an experiment. Uh, it could be experimenting with a certain cadence of writing. It could be thematic. The, the new book is all it's a, it's a vulgar, hilarious romp. I mean, other books have been really almost religiously meditative. Other ones have been um, an epistolary novel. Uh, I mean, I guess the thinking is I have trouble with genre fiction like Westerns, say, because, you know, or mysteries, because, you know, there's a crime, there's a procedure, the crime is solved, and but you're not really changed as a person. There's nothing in there that had the possibility to maybe transform your life. And so that when you conduct an experiment, and sometimes they work well, sometimes they don't, sometimes they work just for certain people, you're at least offering the hope of some sort of interchange in the reader, and possibly yourself too. And uh, um, I, mean, I just basically, I know, I know a book's working when the characters start talking and after a while they start talking on their own and you're not doing anything. And so when someone says something great, like, wow, I can't believe they said that. Like, wait, technically I said that, but where, <laughs> where did it come from? Um, oh, it's, it's a strange, it's a very unnatural process writing is. I don't, I don't know what they were thinking when they invented it. Well, okay. So, but like, because I know like some writers, you know, they'll, they'll start with a title or they'll have, uh, you know, some an opening sentence or a, a visual of a character in a certain situation or whatever. And when I imagine you, I imagine you having some sort of uh, problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, no, 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 not no. At all. You know what it's like? Um, and I'm going to guess here because I'm a guy. Um, mm-hmm, like, and you're sitting doing something else, you're driving a car, and suddenly, oops, oh, oh, I'm pregnant. And. The book just appears to me like, boom, like that. Oh, that's the book. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it, it really it exists sort of intact in my head completely from the start. And then it's, just, it's a matter of over a number of days to bring it out into the real world. But um, So you don't outline or anything? You, you get like, like for with, with worst person ever, how did this, like just to continue your metaphor, how did this pregnancy <laughs> happen? It was like... like Oh my God. It's like, well, first of all, it's kind of like slightly appalled because it's an experiment in vulgarity, but it was enjoyable to write. I, I haven't, I've never written an outline for any book I've ever done. And I always write in one direction from A, B, C, D, E. And I never, I never retro insert chunks or I never move a chapter around, you know, <clears throat> the way it comes out of, uh, my fingers is, is what it's going to be. I, um, I've donated my, uh, papers will continue to donate, uh, to university of British Columbia here in Vancouver. And, and bear with me. Um, in the old days, writers would hand in manuscripts and, and, and they're sort of the most coveted item because you have, it's like abstract expressionist painting. It's like a direct neurological link between you and, and the words you're putting out in the world. But since people began writing almost entirely on electronically back in the 90s, uh, 
archivists are like, oh, number one, you can't, all those diskettes from 1993, half of the electrons have floated away and they're unreadable. And the older archivists just want to, you know, retire and get out of here now. And, but the younger archivists were saying, okay, well, what's new about today? Well, I'm, I'm with Gmail and at the end of every writing day, uh, I email myself as a backup, a copy of the book as it stands. And so we're going back. This is one book called The Gum Thief, uh, which is a novel. And rather than showing a manuscript, we're showing sort of a real-time or a visualization of the book and how it grows from like day one, day two, day three, day four, into the editor, like ching, 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 uh, second draft. And so you actually get to see... Um, how a book is made, sort of played out visually in front of you. And so it's a new way of looking at a very, very old process. This is like, what are books? Where do they come from? Like, why, why do we have them? Well, yeah, no, it's an interesting point about the, the, the job of being an archivist in the digital age and how much that's changed, especially a literary archivist. And I think of Gmail, uh, which, you know, I feel like is sort of a, it's the most popular email platform, at least among my friends. And uh, you get all that storage. You save everything. And I, I can imagine, uh, you know, a, a writer dies and the, the archivist gets his or her Gmail password. And that could be a huge trove, you know, because uh, I guess, you know, back in the day, people wrote longhand letters in really high volume. But the amount of volume you can accumulate emailing uh, can be pretty extraordinary. I'm, I'm imagining literary biographers are going to be able to make hay with that if they're not already. Well, I mean, it- I'm not sure if I want to give anyone on earth my Gmail password. Uh, the, the other thing archivists really want, uh, Brad, is laptops. Um, you know, I, I got my first laptop in 93. It's this big wood-burning Mac. It weighed a ton, but it was really good at the time. And I've got eight or nine of them now, and they're out, out in the storage room. And, and the old ones probably are unretrievable. But that's what they really want because they want – archivists they want to sort of siphon all the information they can out of them but of course it's like the nsa <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah and by the way I, on my iphone 5s it has this thumb uh instead of putting in a code number you just put your thumb and it recognizes your fingerprint it's fantastic oh wait you got that has fingerprint i guess that get, i have the old i might have the old iphone 5 maybe that's- and it works beautifully and on Twitter, I put it a question, you know, um, well, now that I've done a thumbprint on thumbprint on my iPhone, does the NS, you know who, you know, know my fingerprint now? And apparently they don't. It's just it's a graphic that stays within your machine. And One hopes. Uh, one hopes. And uh, so, oh, no, back to Gmail, you were saying, sorry. Well, no, I was just, I'm just thinking, I just think it's going to be an interesting resource for literary biographers and archivists and whatnot. And and it's just an interesting way to keep track of oneself. Like I, 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 I'm not on Gmail. I kind of wish that I were, just because I feel like it. It's not, it's not going to go anywhere. I have uh, a private email company that does my email um, with re- you, you know with respect to my website or whatever. But yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I'm never going to go through it all. It seems like too big of a pile. But at some point, maybe it would be fun to poke around in. Oh, I mean, I just. Um... I just theory about emails. If you if you're writing an email and even once if it goes through your head like, hmm, might this be too emotional or might this be don't send it. Yeah. 
and, and give it like a few hours, come back to it. Okay. Like, you know, be big about it. Remove that flaming sentence there or, you know, be nicer about it or be neutral about it. Um, uh, people are always talking about that app and I think it's apocryphal. But they actually have a, an alcohol breathalyzer attached to the drive. <laughs> well, if you're if you're over point oh two, it's like eh, no way. Yeah, well, I've learned I've had to learn that the hard way. And like, what I have to resist is I have to resist, particularly when I'm sending emails in any kind of business context or sending emails with somebody that I don't know well. Is I have this kind of nervous impulse to try to want to be funny. And a lot of times, when you're trying to be funny, you're overly personal or. You know what I'm saying? Like you're assuming a level of familiarity that you might not have or that seems out of context and, you know, with respect to the nature of the conversation. So I've got to temper that. I think that, I don't know what well, that is. I guess I'm just trying to make friends or whatever, but it's, it's not a good, it's not a good tact to take until you've actually gotten to know somebody. Oh, <laughs> well, you just, you just want to be liked. That's not a crime. Yeah. Um, mine is exclamation marks. I always, I put them in whatever and then I sweep them all out at the end. Yeah. No, there's a great line from F. Scott Fitzgerald about that, where he's like, using an exclamation mark is like laughing at your own joke. <laughs> oh, okay. I think that sort of works, you know. So I want to ask you, uh, before uh, I let you go, I want to talk about the way that your work has been received, um, you know, as predictive. You know, you've managed to be pretty prescient in your novels and uh, to an, like an almost eerie degree, uh, and you've you know you've in, invented words that have wound up into the verna- in the vernacular. And uh, do you have a sense of why that is? And like, can you talk about the way that you read? Because I have to imagine like, you know, your areas of interests and the way that you read is uh, a big component of how that stuff filters down into your fiction. Mm. Um, from the beginning. This is going back to eighty nine ninety when I, when I was writing X. Uh, I've always made a point of setting my books in the extreme present tense, which is like this story is happening right now. And, and I look back at all the writers I do like, like Vonnegut or Joan Didion, uh, British writers like Evelyn Waugh. You can tell almost to the week or the day when that story is taking place. And, you know, Early on in my career, people said, oh, it's going to be dated. It's going to be, you know, well, dated was the word. And instead, they ended up being time capsules, and which I'm, you know, I, I love. That's what I do like to read. But uh, when you consciously set a book in the extreme present, uh, it's kind of like calculus or something that it sort of squeezes the next phase of society out of you. Uh, they're... they're Oh God, this is so boring. I'm sorry. Is it technological determination? But, you know, tomorrow is always predictable within uh, the present. For example, Miss Wyoming, which I think was 97 or 98, um, a a character needed to trace another character uh, driving across the States. And there was this whole elaborate, uh, unbelievable things all the characters had to do just so that they could put a tracer of some sort on the car. And even that didn't work very well. And now we would just have a GPS or, uh, all families are psychotic, which was 2001 where they needed to find an address. But so to do it, they had to actually go to a library. Then they had to like sign in and there was no Google. And so they had to, and they, yada, 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 yada. 
But so younger people, especially, they read those books and go like, man, why didn't they just have a GPS or man, why didn't they just go to Google? But you forget all that didn't exist back then. You know, there, there are inklings of it, but, uh, uh, I, I think it's just, okay. Predictiveness, whatever it ends up being is the side effect of writing about the, the extreme present. And also, but I think also having like a, a, a very acute awareness of what's going on in the, in the extreme present, you know, you got to combine the two, uh, the two things, oh. right? I mean, you, you, have you ever, let me, let me, let me put it another way. Have you ever, uh, looked back at your own work and been creeped out by how prescient you've been <laughs> or like spooked, you know, by, wow, uh-huh. I really, I really nailed that one somehow. Like it, it's gotta be, you know, it's, it's part reading and awareness and paying attention, but it's also intuition and maybe some other, uh, sort of information, uh, you know, the reception of information that might, I don't know. I don't want to get too, uh, well, there's, there, uh, there's this video game right now. It's called Minecraft, which is the most popular game on earth at the moment. Yeah. My, my nieces, I was just with them. They were playing it there constantly. And so I came back in 94, I wrote, uh, the book Microsurfs, which, uh, the characters leave Apple to go start this project called OOP, stands for object oriented programming, uh, which is, and there's like pages going on like articulating what OOP is and OOP went on to become Minecraft. And okay, well, I mean, I'm not part of, not part of the company. And I, part of me is like, Hmm, Doug, maybe you should have been developing that instead of something else. Uh, but, but that, that's one example, um, uh, where, okay, yeah, just nailed it. And, uh, I mean, it, it, human beings are not built to think about the future. We're, we're meant to, you know, you know, fight that mastodon, yes or no, or you know, eat that berry, yes or no. We're, we're not meant to do long-term planning, and I think there is a part of the brain that deals with one's ability to perceive their own passage in this weird thing called time. And some people get a bit more of the brain that does that than others. I, I, I seem to have no problem thinking five, 20 or a hundred years out. Um, and I think that that is a genetic anomaly. I mean, some people are really good at music. Some people are really good at balance. I've just sort of got this weird thing that happens in the time cortex of my brain. Well, and what, and what about, like, cause I feel like the, I think of Vonnegut here too, because you seem to have, um, an ability to, uh, both an interest in and an ability to understand science and technology that is rare in a writer of literary fiction. Oftentimes, uh, I remember Vonnegut in particular bristling at being categorized as a writer of science fiction because he didn't feel like they got treated fairly by the critics or whatever. Um, and he always argued that paying, paying attention to technology and uh, the world of science is uh, a, a natural thing to do. You know, like why, why would you not, uh, especially in the day and age that we're living in now? Like, is that, oh, I, can, I can answer that. Um, in also in microserfs, I did this thing where I had, uh, so it was, I think it was JPod years later, like 10,000 random numbers, which takes 17 pages or the first 10,000 digits of pi. And which is sort of like a Warhol portrait of numbers. And I thought it was just quite beautiful and a fun way of, you know, uh, 
giving the reader something to think about well i would do interviews and, and it was the male male interviewers especially is like what the hell are you putting numbers in a book for my god i i went to literature so i never had to see a number ever again and and the code the telltale phrase there is, is i went into literature to avoid and what you have in the literary world is people who don't like numbers who are more likely than not to be non-visual thinkers and they probably can't stand technology so when you give them a book with numbers and or technology in it, they're like, Ugh. Right. like oh, oh, God, make, it's like homework. Make it go away. So w- when you were growing up, were you good at math? Oh, um, yeah. Okay. So you can see this. You have both sides of the brain going. Like a lot of writers, it's just, you know, they hit the wall at algebra and that was it. But uh, others, I had a friend like that. I went to film school. I had a friend like that who could draw like a perfect portrait of you, make a brilliant film, animated or or uh, live action, but he could also do calculus. It was a, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. Oh, not funny. Um, you know, at Microsoft, they won't even hire you as a, as a personal assistant unless you can do calculus. Well, that, that makes me, uh, that, that cancels me out. <laughs> they call it calculus as a filter. And if you can't do it, just don't even bother entering the building. I, 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 it's a few years back here in Vancouver, I went out to join someone for lunch and uh, at a hotel restaurant. So I walked in and there's all these people in the lobby sitting up and standing down, filling out, obviously filling out a form of some sort. I thought, I mean, what kind of job are these people all going for? I mean, you had bike couriers, you had guys in suits, you had, you know, soccer moms. So finally I asked one of them, what are you guys filling out? Like, oh, these are applications to be on Jeopardy. And I realized you people are all smart. And I realized this is what smart people look like. And it just was one of those funny experiences. Um, uh, People come in clusters of certain things and you can't bite it. And once you realize it, it makes life easier and much more understandable. Right. And and so like when it talk, when you talk about clusters and like the type uh, and you consider your own type, you know, because I think you are sort of a hybrid form. Like you, you, you're doing really interesting visual work. You're doing really interesting work in uh, the literary realm. Uh, I know that you're uh, friends with uh, Michael Stipe, who is uh, also kind of a hybrid form. He's, he's, a, he's a musician who's got a visual arts interest. Like, do you find yourself running with people who carry both of those parallel interests? Most of the people I, I hang out with... Uh, uh, painters or sculptors or film and TV people. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I think it's because it's just verbal and visual together in the same package. And um, you sometimes I'll meet someone, you meet a poetic soul, which is really lovely. Um, but I, there's nothing we can really talk about. And now when I meet someone who's like a true poet, um, I actually quite enjoy just sort of staying there, enjoying their aura. I don't try and make conversation and, and isn't life interesting that we have all these different kinds of people. Yeah. Well, no, and I can, I think, I think there's something to it as well, like being a writer and, and, you know, especially if you're, if you're, if you've been working really intensively in that realm, like you're in the realm of time, you're in the realm of words, uh, then to get to hang around people who have been spending their days uh, in the realm of space or in the realm of color or whatever it is, 
uh, it can be kind of a relief. Like sometimes I'm like, oh God, uh, I, I need to talk to somebody who's not a writer. <laughs> I'm too, I, I'm too I deep into it. Sensation. I know that sensation. Yeah. So, uh, I guess before I leave you, like I, I'm interested to know, um, you know, if you, if you look towards, uh, the future, like both creatively and then also like generally, like I, I've been reading news lately that, uh, especially climate related news, I can't stop. And it's just depressing the hell out of me. Um, I'm assuming you're aware of all this, you know, like, uh, I guess the first one, the first question would be like, where do you think we're headed? Uh, not just in, with respect to climate, but with respect to life in general, like, are, do you find yourself optimistic? Or are you kind of a fatalist? Hmm. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I pull back and look at the numbers and still in 2014, uh, life is statistically numerically, on an average dope basis, better than it's ever been for human beings on Earth. I mean, there's a lot of horrible situations, but there are fewer of them. Uh, that's one way. I mean, the other, I, I was in China and I was doing research at Bell Laboratories in Shanghai. You know, I, I was meeting with the vice president of the uh, Shanghai Communist Party. And we were talking about the future and, and China's new five-year plan, which ends, I think, on 2017, is to give every citizen, man, woman, child, in the top 20 cities one gig a second of connectivity. Uh, in the secondary and tertiary cities, like things maybe 200. And then for people out in the countryside, uh, five megs a second, which is what you get with, you know, downtown Manhattan and, at the moment. And, and it's China, and it's a five-year plan, so it's going to happen. You know it is. And it's like, well, you know, have you, have you thought about the unintended side effects of, you know, extreme connectivity for 1.2 billion people and like side effects. No, why would we? Well, uh, well, you know, it, it could, you know, you know, cough, cough, have a lot of political ramifications and, and, and he's, he waved away and said, you know, that doesn't matter because the fact of the matter is no matter where you are on earth, the future is about extreme connectivity. And, and if we don't do it, we're just going to be, you know, second or third to get to the party. It's the future. It's inevitable. So we're doing it. And that was kind of a shivers down my spine moment. Um, because it is the unavoidable future. And I, and I don't quite know what that means for relationships and interrelationships between people or organizations or politics or religions. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm strapped into a roller coaster, then there's like no getting off. But that's maybe all of us right now. Uh, but the net overall result seems to be that things are kind of actually getting better. And we're at the point now where things are starting to get more creatively diverse. Um, am I saying that? Uh, what am I saying? that we've entered the phase of technology where people are customizing things and we're getting back to unique items uh, made with machines. And, well, I don't know, Brad. I mean, if I overthink it, I'll get depressed. If I think about it properly, I'll, I'll just get energized and, you know, look forward to it. Yeah, I think, I mean, and it seems like the saner way to go. I've got to keep myself from getting too deep into, like, you know, the polar bear on the iceberg. I got to stay away from that visual. <laughs> um, j j just go look up, you know, puppies and kittens on YouTube. Yeah. That's some, some, there's this newspaper in Florida, that old people get, I think it's called the good news times where it only has good news. There we go. 
So like on September 12th, the headline would have been uh, something cheerful and probably 9-11 has never been mentioned in it once. Uh, but, you know, maybe what you need is a subscription to the good news. <laughs> well, I think there's something to that because I think, uh, you know, cons- the way we consume like, informationally matters, you know, a lot and maybe more than um, I or most people might might think, you know. Well, just stop stop binging on TED videos and stop right. binging on info. That's right. That's right. So uh, one last question. Uh, are you working on anything new or are you just uh, – are you in kind of the – the promotional phase for worst person ever? Oh, I mean, I've I've got a huge museum retrospective starting in Vancouver on May 30th. It's like 10,000 square feet. It's a huge show. And so for the last half year, it's absorbed most of my life. I have this column that runs every other weekend in the financial times magazine in London. And, but you can get it without a paywall in the States. And it's wonderful because it just, it's a way for me to, uh, get a little calm and sad. Everyone thinks it's killing me. It's too much pressure. It's quite the opposite. It's it relaxing and, and frees me up to just, okay, let's put the, the writing part of the brain, give it a bit of a run, but no, lately it's all been for the show. It's just an, uh, 16 hour days. Wow. And that show's going to run, you said from May until labor day. Until labor. And, and then it's going to a few other venues. So, it has a big 400-page catalog. I'm sorry, that's where writing's gone. I mean, after the catalog, well, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. Wow. Well, so if people are up in Vancouver, they can check it out. Ten thousand square feet. You got a lot of work to show. <laughs> Been doing it for 13 years, 14 years now, and uh, I'm sort of you know I, I could put images on the website. But I think I'm just going to wait until the show's up and you can say there. Like I wasn't, I wasn't just, wasn't just kidding, folks. <laughs> Well, I wish you luck with it. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Uh, congratulations on the new novel and, and congratulations on the upcoming show. And uh, we'll certainly be interested to see uh, you know, what, what you come up with next, both uh, as a writer of books and as a visual artist. Well, Brad, thanks very much. You're, you're very gracious. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is Douglas Copeland. Go get his new novel. It's called Worst Person Ever. It's available now from Blue Rider Press. You can find Doug online at copeland.com. He's also on the Twitter where his handle is at Doug Copeland. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now wherever apps are available. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. It's automated. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's just two bucks a month or uh, 5 bucks for 6 months of access, or $9 for a full year. You do that, you sign up for premium, you get access to everything. The full archives, all 260-some-odd episodes, including my conversations with writers like Susan Orlean, David Shields, Eric Larson, Sam Lipsight, Lydia Millett, Ben Fountain, Ben Marcus, Ben Laurie, all kinds of Bens. So please do that. Go get the app and then sign up for premium and support this program. I would appreciate that. Otherwise... Uh, if you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what's going on in your life. Tell me a story. Let me know what you think of the show, whatever you, uh, whatever you want to say. And uh, perhaps I'll read your letter on the air. It could happen. Okay? So uh, I don't know what generation I'm in. Am I in Generation X? I should have asked Doug Copeland that. <laughs> perhaps he could have told me. Uh, I've never been 100% clear on it. Probably because uh, I don't really give a shit. 
What does it matter? You're a millennial? I'm, an, I'm a generation Xer? What does that change? You get a t-shirt? You get like a coffee mug or something? Please remember that Jean Genet was a paid informer for the Nazis in World War II and that Van Wyck Brooks once described James Joyce as, quote, salacious, bad-smelling, and sick. That's it for now. Thanks again to Doug Copeland. Go get his new novel. Go see him uh, in L.A. at the Skirball on April 17th if you happen to be in town. And uh, I think that's it. I think what I've done here, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is I've just completed another episode. We've now come to the end. I hope it was an enriching experience. I hope that wherever you uh, are, you are currently sitting in a relaxed position with a faraway look in your eyes and a glazed smile on your face. What generation are you in, by the way? What is the name of your generation? (laughs) 